Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are pressing on in our series in the life of Abraham with James Jordan, and here Jim's going to be in Genesis chapters 22 and 23 as he looks at the theme of resurrection faith in the stories of Isaac and Abraham. All of our upcoming Theopolis events are linked down there in the show notes. We do want to make you aware of an upcoming course on biblical numerology. That course is going to be taught by James B. John and Alistair Roberts and will be an online class. That starts later this month, and for more information, you can check that link down there in the show notes. We do hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the life of Abraham. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word. We ask that you bless our minds and hearts by your Holy Spirit as we seek to meditate on these things and learn once again what it means to have faith in you and have confidence in your plan for the future and your working out our salvation in history. We ask now these things in the name of Christ our King. Amen. This is the 11th of our studies in the life of Abraham the next to the last one. And because chapter 22 is a short section compared to the other sections that we've looked at, and chapters 23, 24, and 25 are a unit by themselves and is very long, we'll have to kind of divide that in half. So for the sake of the lectures, I've grouped Genesis 22 and 23 together under the heading of Resurrection Faith, but in terms of the literary structure of the history of Abraham, Chapter 22 is a unit. It's actually the seventh unit in the history. And then 22, verse 20 to 25, verse 18, including a 67-verse chapter, Genesis 24, is itself a second unit. So we'll have to break it up a little bit. Let's talk, first of all, about resurrection faith. What the Bible wants us to see is that in spite of our sin and the fact that we are fallen and are under the judgment of God, God promises new life and resurrection to us, and he grants it by his Holy Spirit. And this is the theme constantly throughout the Bible. There are over and over again passages that show judgment and then resurrection, what we've called God's surprise, God's laughter in history, because Isaac means laughter. He's the surprise, the surprise of God that turns darkness into light just when you least expect it. And in the history of Abraham, we've seen that Abraham made an exodus out of the land of Ur and into the land of Canaan. In the second section of the story, we saw Abraham moved by God down into Egypt where he was attacked by Pharaoh. But just as later on in the Mosaic exodus, God defeated Pharaoh. Pharaoh tried to attack the bride, satanically tried to take Abraham's wife against the law. But God delivered them and Abraham came out with much spoil. And then he was reestablished in the land and started up his ministry of preaching to the Gentiles and reestablished all the altars that he had before and began to conduct his evangelistic work there in the land. This was an attack by Satan. And Abraham is aware of who Satan is. He is aware that Satan manifests himself as a dragon, attacking the bride, attacking the seed. He's aware that Satan manifests himself as an accuser, What did Pharaoh say? Pharaoh said, Abraham, this is all your fault. It wasn't Abraham's fault. It was Pharaoh's fault. 
Pharaoh hadn't tried to rape Abraham's wife, there wouldn't have been any problem to start with. But no, Satan always tries to attack the faithful and make them feel guilty. And then Satan manifests himself as a serpent coming in the king of Sodom. And king of Sodom comes to Abraham and says, Remember, let me give you a whole bunch of things out of the city of Sodom. And Abraham is tempted to receive the blessings of the land from the Canaanites, which he can't do. He has to wait and let God give him the blessing. And so these are themes that we've seen already that are going to be important for us today. And in chapter 22, we come again to this idea of resurrection faith. The dead womb has given forth a child. The uncircumcised man who is theologically as good as dead, as the book of Romans says, has now been circumcised, and he has a child. Abram, mighty father, who was embarrassed for a hundred years because he didn't even have any children, now has become Abraham, father of a multitude, with one child. And yet, by faith, he looks to the resurrection. He's seen God bring life out of death in his own life, and now comes what's called a test. Let's look, first of all, at the faith of Abraham. It came about after these things, that is, after Abraham lives in the land of Philistia, after the Philistines come and make a covenant with him and are converted to worshiping the true God, after Ishmael is sent away and Isaac is the only son left, after these things, when Abraham is living outside the land in the outskirts of Egypt, Remember, Philistia is part of Egypt. Living outside the land and in part of Egypt, after these things, it says, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, because Ishmael is gone. The son whom you love, Isaac, laughter, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. What does it mean for God to test Abraham? Does God not know Abraham's faith? Is God not omniscient? Doesn't God know our hearts better than we know them? Doesn't God know us better than we can ever know ourselves? You know, in your life, it's a process of self-discovery. As you get older, you learn more about yourself. You learn more about how rotten you are. And you also learn more about what your gifts and potentials are. You run into people who, for 50 or 60 years, have never played a musical instrument and then take it up. Suddenly, they're interested in music. Something happens in their growth experience that opens up a new horizon. There may be somebody in this room that one day will write 20 novels, and you've never written any fiction in your life. And yet one day... The accumulation of experiences in your life will unlock something in your brain that hasn't even been used yet, and you may become a famous novelist. You never know. And as we grow, we learn more and more about ourselves, but God knows us better than we'll ever know ourselves. God knows our potential to infinity. A billion years from now in heaven, we'll still be learning new things. We'll still be developing new capacities, but God already knows it all. So does God need to test Abraham to find something out? No. Testing in the Bible is to demonstrate what God has already put there. Testing is to demonstrate what God has already put there for his own glory and for the encouragement and confirmation of his people. When God tests us, 
and we pass the test, we're encouraged because we see that we could never have done it ourselves. It's God, the Holy Spirit, who is with us, enabling us to go through the test. And that's an encouragement to us. Beyond that, though, this passage is going to show us, if we read it carefully, a great deal about what true faith is. That faith is faith in the resurrection. Now, as we start this very famous chapter, let's try to put out of our minds Sunday school and Hollywood. Abraham was not a guy with 20 servants roaming around as a nomad living in a teepee. Abraham probably had eight or 10,000 servants at this time. The next chapter calls him a mighty prince. He was an extremely important sheikh in the ancient world. And what kind of tent did he live in? I was thinking about this the other day, and I thought I hadn't pointed this out yet, and it's kind of a revelation. You know, when you go to a Hollywood movie, they show you these big tents like Bedouin tribesmen live in. But Bedouin tribesmen are nomads. They move from place to place as the months go by. They'll put up a big tent. When the wind blows, the tent flaps. You know that kind of tent? That's not what the Bible means by tent. What does the Bible mean by tent? What is the tent? The tabernacle. And it had wooden walls. It was big. That's the kind of tent Abraham lived in. If you want to know what a Bible tent is like, think about the tabernacle. And Abraham's tent was probably quite a bit bigger. The tabernacle only had a limited purpose. Abraham had a big purpose. But it had all these wooden boards along the walls, and you could take it down. They moved the tabernacle around in the wilderness. And Abraham's tent could be taken down, but this wasn't any teepee he was living in. He was an important sheikh with a large tent, unquestionably in my mind, with wooden boards for walls and stakes, you know, through them, holding them up just like the tabernacle, large roof. And Abraham didn't move from place to place. He lived 20 years here, 20 years there. He's been living in Beersheba here for about 20 years. He may have dwelt in a tent you don't live 20 years in the teepee. No, it was a big tent. The only thing was, you could take it down and move it somewhere else. we got to get a picture in our mind of who Abraham is and get rid of Hollywood. And the other thing we need to get rid of is the idea that Abraham had no idea what was going on here. Abraham knew what was going on. What was in Abraham's mind? Oh, no, I love my child. Now God asked me to kill him. What shall I do? There was a movie a few years ago called The Bible in the Beginning where George C. Scott got to overplay the role of Abraham for about an hour. And one long sequence, he agonizes a great deal about this. Well, I'm sure it was no fun for Abraham to consider sacrificing his child. But what was in Abraham's mind? Who is Isaac? What did God say to Adam and Eve? Adam wrote the first three or four chapters of the Bible. Abraham had that. He had the records of Noah. He had all these chapters that we have up to this point. So he knew God said that one day the seed would come into the world and would crush the serpent's head. And what would happen to the seed? His heel would be bruised. And God had also taught Abraham many years that you may die, but you come back to life again. So what's in Abraham's mind? Who is Isaac? He's the seed. Isn't he going to save the world? Yes. And when the seed is killed, won't that destroy Satan? Yes, and Abraham knows about Satan. Satan's attacked him repeatedly. And won't God bring Isaac back to life? Yes. Abraham knows all this. He already knows all this. It's already been taught. And we'll see in the passage itself that Abraham knows these things. He knew that Isaac would be raised from the dead. And he expected this to be the moment 
in which the world would be saved. Abraham was told that he had a ministry to save the nations of the world. He had been preaching to the Gentiles for 40, 50 years. And now comes the moment when God would have a transition from wrath to grace in history, and God would save the world through the sacrifice of Abraham's only son. That's what Abraham expected to happen. Now, he was wrong. We know that this is just a picture of the seed, the son, whose death would destroy Satan and whose resurrection would bring the world back to life again. But Abraham didn't know that yet. Abraham thought Isaac was the one. So, take your son Isaac and go to the land of Moriah. That's in the promised land. In fact, the land of Moriah is where? What is Mount Moriah? What was built there later? The temple. And what happened in 30 A.D. on Mount Moriah? Jesus was crucified. And we know that from later passages. And if you're taking notes, you can jot down 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, which tells us that that's where the temple was built. Take your only son... This connects it to our Lord Jesus Christ, who was God's only son. Ishmael is out of the picture. And go to the land of Moriah. This is an exodus, another exodus out of Egypt. How many have we seen? Over and over again, God calls his son out of Egypt. Isaac was born in the land of Philistia, and then he's brought out to the mountain of God. Take your son, your only son, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a whole burnt sacrifice. Human sacrifice. Does the Bible teach human sacrifice? Of course, the death of Jesus Christ is the only acceptable human sacrifice. In that sense, the Bible is in favor of human sacrifice. Jesus is the only acceptable sacrifice. The rest of us are bound up in sin. But Jesus is the acceptable human sacrifice. All sacrifice in the Bible is human sacrifice because the animals substitute for human beings. You see, I deserve to die, but I put my sins on this lamb, and the lamb dies instead of me. But that's a picture that I deserve to die. And you see, that's what saving faith is, that we confess that we deserve to die. That's how bad sin is. We don't just deserve to be spanked. We deserve to die. We deserve to go to hell. Jesus went through hell for us. All right. Abraham was willing to do this, and he knows that this is sacrificial language, and he knows that he's not called upon to kill Isaac. He's called upon to offer Isaac as the atonement for the sins of the world. So that's what's in Abraham's mind, and that's why he's willing to do it. You know, every now and then you hear about somebody killing their child and saying, God appeared to me and told me to kill my child, just like God appeared to Abraham. No way. There are no parallels. Liberals and humanists like to throw stuff like that at us. They've never read the text and understood it. That's not what this passage is about. It's not about killing a child. It's about making atonement for the sins of the world. And Abraham believed that Isaac was the seed, the son, whose death would save the world. And that's why he was willing to do it. So, Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, two witnesses, I guess, and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering. Notice the wood here. We'll talk about that in a minute. And rose and went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, the third day is always a day of resurrection and judgment in the Bible, the day when things happen and the world is changed. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder 
and I'll come back. No. And we will worship, and we will return to you. In Hebrew, the we is repeated. We will worship, and we will return to you. That's why the author of the epistle to the Hebrews says that Abraham reckoned that God would raise him from the dead. He knew in advance that Isaac would have to come back from the dead. We will worship, and we will return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. Picture of Jesus carrying the cross. Isaac. Isaac is not a four-year-old. Four-year-olds don't carry big bundles of wood. Isaac is 18 or 20. The word is youth. It means a late teenager. You're mature when you're 30, so Isaac could be anywhere up to 30 years of age. He's more likely 15, 18. It's important. Isaac is old enough to fight back. See, Isaac understands too. Isaac goes along willingly. Isaac, his big, strong, older teenage son, carries the wood. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. Why did he take the fire? Why not just make a fire when you get to the top? Who remembers? It's God's fire. God had lit this fire. You know when they built the tabernacle? They didn't light the fire on the tabernacle. It says God sent fire down from heaven and lit the fire on the altar. It was God's fire because it's God's judgment. And it says later on in Chronicles when Solomon built the temple, fire came down from heaven and lit the fire on the altar. It was God's fire. He started it. It's his judgment. When Noah built the ark, did Noah close the door of the ark? No. Remember? God closed the door of the ark. It was God's judgment. So this is fire that at some point in the past God himself has lit. It's not strange fire like Nadab and Abihu brought, fire they lit themselves. This is God's fire. And Abraham takes God's fire along because it's a whole burnt sacrifice. It's going to be God's judgment that's visited on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, 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 wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will see to it. That's literally what it says. God will see to it for himself, the lamb for the burnt sacrifice, my son. Has God provided the lamb? Yeah, you see, Sarah couldn't have any children. And Abraham was uncircumcised, so he was in the flesh. The flesh had not been cut away. And then Sarah not only was barren, but she went through menopause, and she was incapable of having children. But then God worked a miracle and told them that they would have a son. But then Satan moved in with Abimelech and seized Sarah just before Abraham could cause her to have a child. And God had to deliver them from Abimelech. And now, miracle of miracles, God has provided the lamb. And, of course, it's Isaac. God has seen to it. The miracle son. And, of course, this is a figure of the virgin birth. God caused Jesus to be born miraculously out of a closed womb and then brought to pass the redemption of the world. So, God has provided the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them walked on together. This is the second time we're told the two of them walk on together. Why do you suppose that's stressed here? The two of them walked on together. Unity. Covenant unity between the Father and the Son. What's going to happen to that unity? It's going to be ripped in half. Just like in the sacrifices, the animal is ripped in half. And just as on the cross, Jesus said, 
my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, the emphasis on their covenant unity sets us up for what the sacrifice is all about, being cut apart. That won't happen, though. We know. But Abraham didn't know it at this point. I've stressed Abraham's faith that he expected the death of Isaac to pay for the sins of the world, and he expected Isaac to be raised from the grave. But I'm sure it was painful nonetheless. The two of them walked on together. By the way, if you want to make this typological, I think that God the Father walked with Jesus Christ up the road to Golgotha and only separated from him during the three hours of darkness. God the Father helped Jesus carry the cross and separated from him only during the three hours of darkness. Well, that's taking it prophetically. Oh, I meant to say something about the wood. Why did Abraham take along the fire? Because it was God's fire. The passage emphasizes wood for the sacrifice. What's the possible reason for this? We've seen it several times, wood. What's wood made of? Trees. When God made the world and he put man in a place, what was that place full of? Trees. And there were two trees in particular, tree of life and tree of judgment, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happened to those trees? I mean, what happened to man? Does man get to eat of those trees? No, they're cut down. In fact, the tree of life that was supposed to give life now gives judgment. I think, you know, I can't prove this without just going through the whole Bible and checking it out and making sure that it fits every time it needs to fit. But I think that the emphasis on wood here and other places is to say that the trees of the Garden of Eden are cut down and become the wood that burns us up. And there have to be new trees. There has to be a new planting, a new Garden of Eden, because the first one was defiled. It actually, is washed away in the flood. But when Jesus comes, you know, if you look in Ezekiel chapter 47 or Revelation 22, it says that water flows out from the throne and new trees spring up, new trees of life with leaves to heal, heal the nations. You don't go back to the old garden. You get new trees. Sin has destroyed man's life and man's knowledge, and both of them are cut down and destroyed and are burned up along with the sacrifice. But then God will create new trees. Well, that's a guess. But for some reason, the wood is emphasized here. And I think that that's probably what's in mind if we take it in biblical context. Cut down the beautiful trees that were supposed to give us life. And we get tied down and put on them and burned up unless there's a substitute willing to take it in our stead. And Jesus was nailed to wood. In fact, what was Jesus before he took on his messianic mission and was baptized? He was a carpenter man who worked with wood. There's a lot about wood in the Bible, isn't there? You don't ever hear much about it, do you? You're not going to hear much today either because we've got a lot more to talk about. Someday we'll have to make a whole study of trees and wood in the Bible. That'll be after we make a study of fish in the Bible. All right. Let's look now at the provision of God. The provision of God, verses 9 to 14. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac. Isaac cooperated. He's big enough to fight back and run away. And laid him on the altar on top of the wood, wood, wood. Okay. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord, not God, God didn't call from heaven, nor did the Lord call him from heaven. Of course, these are all the same. But it says the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. 
Now, the angel of the Lord has only appeared twice in the Bible up to this point, and so if we really knew the Bible, we would think of two other passages that have come before. Now, does anybody know the Bible well enough? I didn't. I had to look at the cross-references, but you can't look there. Does anybody know the Bible well enough to know what we're supposed to think about when we read the angel of the Lord called? Well, yes, the, the angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity, but I mean in terms of Bible context. Something in Genesis 1 to 21 about the angel of the Lord. He has appeared twice, this language. No, the angel of the Lord, the two times that that language is used is when God appears to provide for Ishmael, not what you think of. Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. And the idea here is that just as the angel preserved Ishmael when Ishmael twice was cast out in the wilderness and God provided for him, just as the angel preserved Ishmael, so he preserves Isaac. And there's going to be another parallel with Ishmael later on in this passage too. Just as God preserved Ishmael, so he preserves Isaac. Ishmael was preserved by the angel of the Lord, and so is Isaac. Verse 12, and the angel says, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know, and that has the connotation of judge, now I know or judge that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Fear in the Bible means to be afraid of God. It has to mean that, and we shouldn't soften it up. But it also means to worship God. And true worship is to offer the sacrifice. How do we offer sacrifice? Well, we remind God of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why we have this memorial here about an hour from now, bread and wine, and we remind God that Jesus has died to pay for our sins. And he looks upon Jesus Christ and forgives us. That's the way in which we do sacrifice. That is, we remind God of the finished sacrifice. And similarly here, Abraham is shown to worship God through sacrifice. In this case, he was willing to offer Isaac, but God says, I want you to see that it's not your son, but my son, who's going to have to die for the sins of the world. And so God says, now I judge that you fear God, that you worship God, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. A man must be ready to sacrifice everything for God. Abraham's justification was by faith, but it was shown by his works, as James tells us. Well, then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. Get a picture of that in your mind. A ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. What's a thicket? That's right. That's right. Thorns and thistles it will bring up. And I think that's the idea here. Remember, we're still real close to Genesis 3. Abraham is always going to be thinking back to Genesis 3. Trees and thorns. And he's going to be thinking thorns and thistles. And now that speaks of the curse. The curse has trapped the ram. Jesus took the curse for us. It was the curse that was placed upon him. That's why a crown of thorns was put on him. And here the ram has its head caught in thorns. A ram caught in a thicket by his horns in his head. The horns are his power, and his power is cut down by the thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt sacrifice in the place of his son. Now we're so familiar with that, but let's think about it just for a second. 
Later on, there will be millions of sacrifices in the Bible. The Mosaic system, there will be hundreds and thousands of rams and lambs and bulls sacrificed. And every one of those, they understood from this verse, was a substitute for a human being. Substitutionary atonement. The ram substituted for Abraham's son. And it was all a picture that God's son would be the substitute for Abraham's son. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to really take away sin. They can only symbolize it. Then Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will see. <laughs> the Lord will be seen. In the mount of the Lord it will be seen. Now it says provide and that's fine. But the word is really see. And now we should remind something that we've looked at again. There's one other passage that we've already looked at earlier in the Bible where it says, somebody says that God sees her. And names a well, thou God seest me. Who is that? Hagar and Ishmael. We're back in Ishmael language again. And again, just as God provided for Ishmael, so God will provide for Isaac. And it's a prediction of God's future provisions. How did God provide for Ishmael? Both times. Well, the first time he sent Hagar back to submit to Sarah. But the second time, how did God provide for Ishmael? He was what? He was starving to death without water, dying of thirst. And God provided water. Okay. In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. The idea is of water or of the grace of the Holy Spirit, which water signifies so often in the Bible. In the mount of the Lord, the Lord will see to it. And he will provide for Isaac as he provided for Ishmael. So these promises are for us. Well, that's how it happened. Now let's look at the promise of God. Then the angel of the Lord, there he is again, the one who blessed Ishmael and now blesses Isaac. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. Why a second time? Over and over again, God speaks twice, and it says he calls a second time. Testimony of two witnesses, and beyond that, the fact that God confirms his word by an oath, as the book of Hebrews says. And so God says, by myself I have sworn, confirming his word by an oath, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Same language as he used the first time, now he repeats it. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Sounds like salvation by works. If you obey and do good works, then you get the blessing. Well, that's true in a sense, because good works are always faith-filled works. The Bible says we're saved by faith, but it's faithful obedience that brings us the blessings. And in our passage in the Bible here, we have studied out an example of that. Was Lot saved? Yes, Lot was saved. But did he get any blessings? No, he lost it all because he didn't continue to be faithful. And on the other hand, Abraham is in the reverse situation. Abraham has faith and he's saved, and his faithfulness over the years and his faithful obedience brings him the blessing. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, I will greatly bless you. Faithful obedience over the long haul brings the blessing. And the promise is that the seed, the son, will possess the gate of his enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him.
So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, which is back in the land of the Philistines. And Abraham lived and dwelt in Beersheba, continued to dwell outside the promised land. Why is it important that Abraham returns to the land of Philistia? To show that this is not the final and permanent exodus. You know, when Jesus delivers us from Egypt, we don't ever go back. Once saved, always saved. If you're really saved, then you're always saved. And we can be confident of that. If we're delivered from Egypt, then we don't go back. But this was not the final deliverance. And so Abraham returns back to the land of Egypt, the outskirts of Egypt, there at Philistia, and continues to live there. Well, that's the section about the sacrifice of Isaac. Let's take away from this that Abraham understood. What Abraham understood was that Isaac would sacrifice for the sins of the world and that he would be resurrected. And what he saw was Jesus Christ, our Savior. Well, now we come to the last section in the history of Abraham, as it's organized by the authors of the Bible here, the records of the generations of Isaac. Isaac wrote this part of the Bible, and Isaac has organized it in eight sections, and we come now to the eighth. And I've given you an outline of this section. It starts off with the twelve sons of Nahor, and it ends with the twelve sons of Ishmael. And both of those passages have as their theme the multiplication. And it's a contrast to Abraham. Abraham only has one son. And yet all these other people around him have twelve. Twelve plus a daughter. That seems to have been the rule. Now that's not a male chauvinist statement. It just seems to have been the rule at that time. Twelve sons of Nahor, twelve sons of Ishmael. And the theme is multiplication. And God kept telling Abraham that he was going to multiply. And yet he doesn't exactly multiply immediately. And there's a reason for that. And inside of this, we have the death and burial of Sarah, the bride, and her insertion into the land as a promise of the future resurrection. And then at the end of the passage, we have the death and burial of Abraham and his insertion into the land, the cave at Machpelah. And centered in the middle of it, we have the provisions for the seed, a bride for the seed so that the seed line can be perpetuated, and separation from the seed as Abraham sends his other sons away, the sons of Keturah, which is to protect the integrity of the seed line. Well, let's look very quickly at the twelve sons of Nahor and see why this is stuck in here. Why is it stuck in here at this particular place in the Bible? It came about after these things, verse 20, that it was told Abraham, saying, notice it says after these things. In other words, there's some relevance to what we've just finished reading and what we're about to read. There's some relevance to this. It's not just jammed in here. Liberals would say, well, we've got a collection of stories and this is jammed in here, you know. Whatever final redactor didn't know what else to do with it, so he stuck it in here. No, we don't believe that. It came about after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor, back in the land of Paden Aram. Uz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother, or in Hebrew, Uz and Booz. <laughs> And Kemuel, the father of Aram, another Aram, and Kezid, and Hazel, and Pildash, and Jidlaf, and Bethuel. I made it. And Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These ate milk aboard of Nahor, Abraham's brother, and his concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Teba, and Gaham, and Tehash, and Maacah. I think there are four reasons that this is stuck in here. Not stuck in here. There are four reasons why God placed it here. The first is to say 
that the non-seed line, these other people are multiplying, but Abraham is not multiplying in spite of the promise. So it sets up a contrast. God has given all these promises to Abraham that he's going to multiply. In fact, he's even given him this name, which means father of a multitude. And yet, where is the multitude? It just isn't there, is it? God keeps telling him he's going to be like the stars of the heavens. It's going to be like the sand of the seashore. It's going to be like the dust of the earth. Well, where are they? Would you be frustrated? Now, some of us would not be because we have so much faith. Well, there is a principle here we have to understand. I mean, don't you want a quiverful? Everybody says they want a quiverful. They forget that a quiverful is about 50. How many of you women really want a quiverful? A chariot quiver had 50. A quiver over your back had 30. None of us really wants a quiverful if we count it up that way. Unless we're going to adopt a lot and hire some servants to help us raise them. No. What's going on here? The contrast between Abraham, who isn't multiplying yet, he's still got one son, and his brother, who's got 12, plus a daughter. Well, the first purpose of the passage is the contrast. Contrast. The second is to show patience. Again, the essence of Abraham's faith is patience. The essence of Jacob's faith is what? Wrestling with God. But the essence of Abraham's faith is patience. Abraham waited and waited and waited on the Lord, and he inherited the promises. And here again, Abraham is being taught patience. Patience, Abe. Actually, Abraham winds up with six more sons before it's all over with, but he doesn't know that now. All right? The third thing this passage does is, by mentioning Rebekah, it sets the stage for getting a wife for Isaac. Contrast patience and a wife for Isaac, because the next thing that happens is the death of Sarah. And we've got Rebekah mentioned here. But now let's come to what I think is the most important thing that the passage does. And it's what I've already pointed to. Abraham has one. Nahor has twelve. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have one like Isaac or twelve like these guys you don't know anything about? Or to take another example that we've looked at in the past, would you rather have one like Samson? It's not the number that counts. It's the quality. It's not the number of children, but the quality of the one seed that counts. You see, the true Isaac can die for the sins of the world. We only need one redeemer. Jesus Christ is a quiverful. He will speak to the enemies at the gates. It's not the number, but the quality. Now, I'm not saying that to despise having large families. That's up to the individual to make a choice. The point of this passage, though, is that it's the quality of the one seed that counts, not the number. Thus, Paul, reading this passage, says that the promises to Abraham, though they spoke of many descendants, actually pointed to the one seed. You ever wonder how Paul gets this in Galatians? He says, God did not speak as regarding many, but as of one seed. And yet it always seems to be talking about stars and sand of the seashore and all the many. It's because of this passage here that sets up this contrast between the one seed who will die for the world and the many children of Nahor. Both could be happy, and Abraham could be happy. Chapter 23. This is, again, a theme of resurrection faith. Abraham wants to bury Sarah in the land because that's a pledge that one day God will restore her and him to life. Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. It wasn't called Hebron then. It was called Kiriath Arba. had its Canaanite name. In the land of Canaan. Well, we knew it was in the land of Canaan, so why are we told it? 
And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham arose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, these Hittites, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Let me have a burial site among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He's not asking for a gift. He's willing to pay for it. That's important. The sons of Heth, the Hittites, the Canaanites, answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. That's what it literally says, a prince of God. I think that means these Hittites were converts, and they recognized Abraham as God's representative and God's spiritual leader for them. They love Abraham, as we'll see. They want to help Abraham, as we'll see. That shows me that their hearts are changed. Remember Pharaoh. Pharaoh kicked Abraham out. These men don't treat him that way at all. You are a God's prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, and spoke with them, saying, If it's your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron the son of Zohar for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field for a full price. Let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even of all who went in at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me, I give you the field. Ephron wants to give it to Abraham. I give you the cave that's in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Isn't that generous? Yes, it is. Why won't Abraham take it as a gift? Abraham bowed before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you'll only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Then Ephron answered Abraham and said to him, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver, what's that between me and you? Bury your dead. What's he saying there? Some commentators say this is a polite way of naming the price. I don't think so. I think what he's saying is, look, I'm a millionaire, you're a millionaire. What's 400 bucks? That's what he's saying. If we don't realize who Abraham is and read carefully, we think Abraham is just some poor wandering nomad, you know, and it's going to break his back to cough up 400 shekels. No way. In just about 100 years from now, there are going to be so many people in Abraham's household that they have to fill the whole land of Goshen when they go down there to Egypt. Well, Abraham's a powerful, wealthy man, and what Ephraim is saying is, my Lord... Listen to me. I'm a millionaire. You're a millionaire. What's 400 bucks? Just take it. I don't need the money, and you don't need to give it up. It's a waste of time. Bury your dead. Now Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron very carefully the silver that he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth. 400 shekels of silver. Number four for the four corners of the world. This will be a little teeny-weeny garden of Eden here, symbolizing that they will eventually inherit the land. He waited out commercial standard. And so Ephron's field, which was in Machpelli, which faced Mamre, the field and the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, Eden language, that were within the confines of the border, were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth. It was all very legal before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried his wife in the cave of the field at Machpelli, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, sanctuary city in the land of Canaan. We already knew it was the land of Canaan. Why is it mentioned? So the field and the cave that's in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. What's the temptation set before Abraham in this passage? Someone? To receive the land as a gift from the Canaanites instead of receiving it from God. 
It's the same temptation that the king of Sodom presented him with before. Abraham must resist the temptation to become part of the Canaanites, and he must resist the temptation to receive the land from them. As before, Abraham will not let the king of Sodom make him rich. Only God can make Abraham rich. Now, these people are actually, I think, converts, but it doesn't make any difference. It's God himself who must provide it. Now, God has made Abraham rich, and so Abraham is able to buy the land. But Abraham will not receive it as a gift from anyone but God himself. And the whole passage emphasizes that Abraham is still a stranger in the land. It'll someday be his, but it's not his now. Verse 2, it's called the land of Canaan. Verse 7, the people of the land, Abraham bowed to them. In verse 4, I'm a stranger and a sojourner. In verse 12, Abraham bowed before the people of the land. It's not his land, it's their land. Verse 19, the land of Canaan is Canaan's land. All those verses stress that Abraham does not have this land. It's not his. He has to buy a little piece of it using the money God has given him over the years. All right? The first temptation is in verse 6. It's a temptation to join up and become part of the Hittites. The Hittites say, hey, we worship the same God you do. We recognize you as a prince of God. Join with us. Put your dead in one of our graves. Abraham says, no, I have a special calling. I have to remain separate from you. I'll minister to you, but I have to remain separate. The first temptation is to join up and become part of the Hittites. He has to resist that. The second temptation in verses 7 to 11 is to receive the land as a gift of men instead of as a gift from God. And then the third temptation in verses 12 to 16 is again the same thing, to receive it as a gift. Ephron dies again, look. I love you, man. Just take it as a gift. Abraham says, no, I need to pay for it with God's money. I need to pay for it with God's money. And that way, no one will ever question it. And that way, I affirm my faith that God will give me all of this land. What is the importance of Abraham having this land? Well, it's a down payment on the entire future of the land. Abraham knows that he will someday receive all the land, and this is a token of possession of the land, and it functions that way. Jot down, if you're taking notes, Genesis chapter 50, verse 13. Genesis 50:13, which is where Jacob is taken back and buried on this particular plot, and it's a symbol, a memorial to them, that someday all the land will be theirs. So it is with us. The Holy Spirit is given to us as an earnest or down payment of our salvation. We don't yet see the entire world Christian. We don't yet see the consummation of the kingdom. But we have the down payment of it in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's stand and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do live in your land, in your church, and in your kingdom. We ask that we would be faithful. And like Abraham, that we would look to you as the source of all of our blessing, not fall into temptations and snares. Help us as we come now to worship you, to worship you in spirit and truth, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the only sacrifice that ever atoned for sin, the foundation of our faith and hope. We pray in his holy name. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. 
You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.